0: Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, There, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word of the Lord.
1: Um, Before we begin, let's say a short word of prayer. Heavenly Father, open our ears that we may hear, open our eyes that we may see, and open our hearts that we may believe. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. When it comes to the topic of greed, um, there isn't much debate in our society that greed is a problem. Even allowing for the nuance that we can provide in our society about the nature of greed, for the most part, we understand that as a baseline assumption, greed is a problem. Think back to the financial crisis of 2008-2009 when news pundits, journalists, psychologists, sociologists were trying to diagnose what went wrong. Everyone kind of assumed and understood that greed played a part. The debate was to what extent, in what nature, and what does it say for regulation and so on. But no one was saying, oh, greed didn't play any role in the financial crisis. There was a baseline understanding that greed is a problem and it's pervasive in our society. So the problem with greed is not that we disagree or we have competing visions with greed. The problem with greed is that, well, no one thinks it's their problem. Everyone assumes greed is somebody else's problem. It's not my problem. It's clearly somebody's problem, but not my problem. We do this, for example, because of our uh, society that inherently compares one person to another. So when we think about greed, we immediately think about that one person who is obviously richer than us, for whom, if anyone struggles with greed, clearly it would be them. You see, the problem with that is there is somebody else when they think about the p- topic of greed, they think about you as the person who would obviously struggle with greed and not them. More so, greed itself, unlike other sins, hides itself. It's not a sin that's immediately obvious to us. It's not like lying where you know you're not telling the truth or when you're telling technical truths, you know, the truths where you leave just the critical pieces of information that were you to say it would obviously change the mind of that person. It's not like stealing where you know the watch from the jewelry shop in your pocket did not land there by accident. You knew what happened. Greed hides itself. And so you don't come to church saying, you know, yesterday I struggled with greed and I saw it in my life. It's It hides itself, and so we think, oh, obviously it's a problem for someone else, but it's not a problem for me. So if we're going to come to the words of Jesus Christ in this passage, uh, we need to come with a humbling statement that says, maybe, just maybe, Jesus Christ has something to say to me in this passage. And that's our approach and posture that we have to bring to the words of Jesus Christ, that actually he's speaking to the human heart, that greed is a problem that lures the human heart, and maybe... This may be, therefore, he has something to say to me. So the two points we're going to look at in this passage are, first of all, the nature of greed, and secondly, the way of generosity. Jesus Christ breaks down the nature of greed and then points us to a better way, the way of generosity. First of all, the nature of greed. In the first passage, in the first illustration, Jesus Christ says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus Christ is saying, do not um, pursue wealth because it's inherently temporal, it's unstable, it's vulnerable. A thief can break in and steal it. But more so, he's speaking to the deeper longings of the heart, saying that greed inherently leads us into a spiral of instability, into a spiral of restlessness, because the things that we pursue are not secure, are not eternal and are always vulnerable. Um, The Sermon on the Mount as a whole has been called New Testament wisdom literature because it bears a remarkable resemblance to wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And so actually looking back to Proverbs is insightful for us in understanding what Jesus Christ is saying. So in Proverbs 23, verse 4 to 5, we read, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone but they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. That's what Jesus Christ is hinting to when he speaks about not laying up treasures on earth. He's not saying don't have possessions. God made the world good. In Genesis chapter 1, he looked at creation and said, it is good material possessions in and of themselves are good. God declared that in Genesis 1. He's not even saying uh, don't... uh, Gather material possessions for yourself, um, just as a as a form of beautification. You know, to have um, a fancy a fancy vase just in your in your cupboard to display. If you look at Genesis chapter two, when God is describing um, the Garden of Eden, you know how the Garden of Eden is described. We talk about the trees and the fruit that that Adam and Eve will eat. But one of the things that is mentioned is the presence of onyx. You know what onyx is? A gemstone. You know what gemstones do? Well, nothing. I mean, they did look pretty. It's beautification. God is not saying you cannot have possessions for the purposes of beautifying your surroundings. He does that. You know what else is going to be in the new heavens and a new earth? In Revelation 21, onyx. God created the world beautiful and says, I will continue to beautify. Even in the renewal of this world, I seek beautification." He's speaking specifically to the restlessness and the wearing out of ourselves, pursuing things, thinking that that's where we find our security. There's a um, professor of theology by the name of um, William Kavanagh. He wrote a book entitled Being Consumed, Economics and Christian Desire. And the book is essentially just a diagnosis of our consumerist society, which makes this profoundly harder for us to follow the words of Jesus. He writes in his in his book, in consumer culture, dissatisfaction and satisfaction cease to be opposites, for pleasure is not so much in the possession of things as in their pursuit. There is pleasure in the pursuit of novelty and the pleasure resides not so much in having as in wanting. Once we have obtained an item, it brings desire to a temporary halt. And the item loses some of its appeal. Possession kills desire. Familiarity breeds contempt. That is why shopping, not buying itself, is the heart of consumerism. Then he says this, the consumerist spirit is a restless spirit. The consumerist spirit is a restless spirit typified by detachment because desire must be constantly kept on the move. This is what Jesus is speaking of when he says, do not lay for yourself treasures on earth. Do not enter the spiral of restlessness, pursuing things, thinking that that's where your security and significance is found. But secondly, when he speaks of greed, in the second illustration, he speaks about the eye. He says the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now, it might seem weird. We've we've gone from laying up treasures on earth, which seems immediately obvious, to talking about the eye. But here Jesus Christ is drawing a contrast between greed and generosity. The eye is a metaphor for the way we see the world. And Jesus Christ says, if your eye is bad and full of darkness, essentially on the topic of greed, he's saying greed will blind you. Again, going back to Proverbs, this helps us understand this a little bit more. In Proverbs 28 verse 22, a person with an evil eye hurries after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. The eye is being tied to greed. And so a bad eye, an evil eye, is a greedy person. And a healthy eye is a generous person. Jesus Christ is saying that greed blinds us. It blinds us to the needs of those around us because it turns us in on ourselves. It blinds us to its influence over us. It even blinds us to our lifestyle choices. It means we are uncritical. We don't even want to think about thinking, about questioning our spending habits. Another professor of sociology, uh, Juliet Shaw, in her book, The Overspend American, talks about this comparison culture that is in America. She charts uh, spending habits from the early 1900s starting with the Great Depression all the way through um, to the end of the 20th century. And she writes, what they, Americans, acquire and own is tightly bound to their personal identity. Driving a certain type of car, wearing particular designer labels, living in a certain kind of home, and ordering the right bottle of wine creates and supports a particular image of themselves to present to the world. This is not to say that most Americans make consumer purchases solely to fool others about who they, are, who they really are. It is, not, it is not to say that we are a nation of crass status seekers or that people who purchase more than they need are simply demonstrating a base materialism in the sense of valuing material possessions above all else. But it is to say... It is to say, oh, this is going to be interesting. There we go. But it is to say that many of us are continually comparing our own lifestyle and possessions to those of a select group of people we respect and want to be like. You see, greed means we don't question our lifestyle choices because we're continually, constantly comparing our own lifestyle and our possessions to a particular group of people we want to be like. So of course we need the newest edition of the iPhone because that's what it takes to be in that select group. We don't stop and look at our bank statement and say, do I really need to spend money on that? Do I really need to live that kind of lifestyle? We are uncritical of our financial life because greed says that of course we have to be like a certain group of people. But not only that, greed reveals our idols. The third illustration, Jesus Christ says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the word money here, if you've ever read the uh, older translation of the Bible, for example, the KJV, you'll see the word mammon. And the reason mammon is used is because actually the word money here has been personified. Uh, so mammon it speaks of not just money as, in, as an inanimate object in the material world, but Money is a God. Jesus Christ is saying you cannot serve God and your idols. You will pick the one or the other. It reveals money and greed reveals our idols. In the Gospels is a story where Jesus Christ encounters a rich, young ruler. And this rich, young ruler comes to Jesus Christ and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus Christ says, well, obey the commandments. And so Christ uh, lists some of the commandments and the rich, young ruler says, wow, I've been doing that. And so Jesus Christ says, okay, well, sell all your possessions, give all your possessions away to the poor, and follow me. And the rich young ruler walked away sad. What Jesus Christ was revealing to him in that moment is that you think you're just a foot away from eternal life, but actually you have not been serving God at all. Because if the rich young ruler really wanted eternal life at all costs, when he heard the words of Jesus Christ saying, well, sell all your possessions, give all your possessions to the poor, he should have said, of course, money is not my idol, so I will give it away if I can have eternal life. But the rich young ruler went away sad because he said, oh no, I can't give up my idol in the service of God. Greed reveals your idols. And so Jesus Christ is confronting us and saying, through your financial life, through your spending habits, what are your idols? Because greed reveals our idols. So if we see in the nature of greed, Jesus Christ in those three illustrations also points us to the way of generosity. The way of generosity. First of all, again, in the first illustration, in contrast to laying up treasures on earth, Jesus Christ says, no, instead lay up treasures in heaven. Lay up treasures in heaven. And what that phrase means, John Stott, the Anglican priest in England, uh, just defines this well. he simply says, laying up treasures in heaven is to do anything on earth that has eternal significance for the kingdom of God. It is to say, I need to begin to examine my own financial life and my relationship to money to see if I'm actually using my money, living my life in such a way that I'm pointing ultimately to the kingdom of God and the eternal significance of my life here on earth. Could someone see the kingdom of God in your bank statement? That's what Jesus Christ is asking. So we have to store up treasures in heaven. But secondly, Jesus Christ speaks of the healthy eye in contrast to the bad eye. And if we've seen that the evil eye is to be a greedy person who is blind to the needs of other people, who is blind to their own lifestyle choices or the way money influences their life, then the healthy eye is to see the needs of others. It is to see truly and have light to see what is going on inside your own heart. So Here are three practical steps of what that could look like to cultivate a healthy eye First of all, locate your blind spots. Remember, greed blinds you to your own lifestyle choices and its influence over you. So at least be open to questioning your own financial life, to questioning your spending habits, to questioning your lifestyle choices. Locate your blind spots. But secondly, identify the needs of others. It is not just enough to look in and say, okay, I've been blind to the way I engage with money. But I now also have to look out and see the needs of other people. Where can I live a generous life and live out the generosity that Christ has given to me? And then lastly, make changes accordingly. So it's not just to look in and say, I need to be critical of myself and actually ask the difficult questions. And it's not enough just to look out and say, what are the needs of other people? But it's to also take action and to make changes accordingly. Because as Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, said, greed is a refusal to act because generosity is not a feeling. Greed is ultimately a refusal to act because generosity is not a feeling. It is not enough just to feel as important as it is generous. Ultimately, cultivating a healthy eye is to take the action of living a life of generosity. Third, we see um, that if we need to, uh, in the way of generosity, if we need to lay up treasures on the earth and if we need to cultivate a healthy eye, then we also have to begin to live a life of service to God. So again, in that third illustration, Jesus Christ says, in, in the contrast of God and money, of God and the idols that control your financial life, Jesus Christ says you will either hate the one and love the other. The words hate and love are not speaking to an emotional feeling to one against another, but it's speaking to allegiance. And so the way of generosity ultimately is that I need to be in allegiance to God, that my financial life is part of my service to God and not detached from my service to God. It is part of what it means for me to walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ, not detached from my discipleship with Jesus Christ. And so I have to ask the question, how does my financial life show that I'm walking as a disciple with Jesus Christ? Now, you might say, well, who can do such a thing? I mean, I feel guilty already. I don't want to ask the questions, but I can already begin to know the answers of the questions I don't even want to ask. Or we feel fear. Is this what it takes to be a disciple? Am I even going to have a right-standing relationship with God if this is the standard? Now, recall the rich young ruler that we we discussed previously. The rich young ruler, um, after walking away sad, because he would not give his possessions in order to inherit eternal life. Uh, Jesus Christ says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples hear this and they say, then who can be saved? If this is the standard, who can be saved? And Jesus Christ says, well, with humanity it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That ultimately to serve God is to see first of all that Christ entered our world to serve us and not to be served, to be a ransom for our sins. To serve God means that we see that Jesus Christ left his heavenly treasures and came on earth to make us his treasure. It is to see that the one who was rich became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. And therefore, the deconstruction of greed and our renewal into a life of generosity can only begin when we see the abundance of God and the generosity of Jesus Christ. The deconstruction of greed and our renewal into a life of generosity can only take place when we see the abundance of God and the generosity of Jesus Christ, that we can give freely, not out of fear, not out of guilt, but because God has given us all that we need. I'll end with this. Have you ever seen one of those cute videos or in real life of children who one child is in a playground and their parent has just given them uh, a candy or a, a cookie, and they have this sort of ecstatic joy from what their parent has given them. And then they see a child um, at a distance in the playground who is sad because they don't have anything. And so the cute kid walks up to them and says, here, have my piece of candy. And we all say, oh, look at that. Look at them giving their, 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 their treat away um, to another. You know, one of the reasons children can do that is because they understand They understand that their parent will always care for them. They don't see the world as a zero-sum game where for me to give is my loss. They see that there is enough for everyone. And so I can give to those who have need because I know that I have a parent who will care for me. It is to say that we don't live in a world of competition. We don't live in a zero-sum game. It's what the gospel says. We live as children. But we know we have a heavenly father who meets our needs, who cares for us. And so the way of generosity is grounded and rooted in the truth that God is a God of abundance and there is enough for us. And so we can serve God and give our money to others and serve and meet the needs of others freely and liberally because we know there is a God who will always meet our needs because he's already done so in the generosity of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with hearts that are restless and wondering and thinking what indeed is our relationship to greed? And we ask that as we reflected and thought on the words of Jesus Christ in this passage that we would take serious cues to examine our own life, to locate our blind spots, to identify the needs of others and to make changes accordingly. And we ask that we would live in the way of generosity, not out of fear or guilt, but out of the abundance that you have already given us in the generosity of Jesus Christ. May we be captivated by a vision of the generosity of God, so that we can live lives of generosity towards others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.